Hello and welcome to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. My name is Nick Serraris. It is the Tuesday post-Super Bowl. The Tom Brady narratives are already a bit getting on my nerves, more than they probably should at this point. I know the legacy sports media is lazy and quarterback team win good is basically the state of our discourse and I'm not going to bother getting into why he isn't the story of the Super Bowl, but it's the Buccaneers defense forcing the best, one of the best offenses we've ever seen to look pretty damn bad. So I, I, I did my piece on the Super Bowl on Monday's episode of the podcast. If you haven't gotten a chance to go back and listen to it, I highly encourage you do. Actually, some uh, big brain takeaways, some things that you can actually say and not sound like a talking head who's just trying to fill up their 45 seconds before changing the segment topic. Today's episode of the podcast will be hockey-centric, big-picture, whip-around-the-NHL-type deal. I've been really fortunate this season. I've been able to watch pretty much three to six hockey games every single night. There are hockey games on because of the ease of access to games. I've been watching as many different teams as I can, checking in on as many different storylines. I do read a lot of stuff during the day so that when it comes time to pick what three games go on the three screens in my room, I have a good handle on what I want to watch and why I want to watch them and what I'm going to be looking for when I'm watching them. But before I get to the uh, the subject matter of the episode, got to remind everyone, please help grow the show. Wherever you are listening to this show, please either follow if you're on Spotify, subscribe, review if you're on Apple Podcasts, rate five stars, please, please, please. Working on something video-related, a little bit of an explainer type thing for hockey to explain how expected goals work. I think it'll be very helpful, and it's pretty straightforward and simple to explain. It'll translate well to video. It's one of the things I've been working on during the weekend when I don't put out podcasts is putting out some of that stuff when I'm not watching football, basketball, baseball, hockey, soccer, Formula One, NASCAR, whatever. I am trying to work on some tools in the toolbox here, make myself a little bit more useful. Um, I will see you guys on the other side of the drop, and, uh, yeah, the Rangers really can't beat the Islanders, man. It sucks. I'll see you guys in a suck. Now Branstrom comes back for it, pokes it away from Yamamoto. To Branson. Lost the puck, the centering pass, broken up by Branstrom, stays with it. That was loose, Dreisaitl, a chance, scores! Leon Dreisaitl gets a chance at the side of the goal, makes no mistake, and it's a 1-1 tie. And with that, I'm just gonna jump right on into it, so... Most teams have played somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 or 12 games. There are a few teams, however, that have been more or less in COVID purgatory for a couple of weeks now. The Devils, the Sabres, the Avalanche, the Wild are the four teams that have had significant spread amongst teams. I know the Sabres had to put defenseman Rasmus Dahlin on the COVID protocol list today. The Sabres haven't played a game in 10 days uh, the Devils have not played in more than a week and a half. The Wild have not played in a number of days, nor have the Colorado Avalanche. The league announced today that those all four of those teams would have their return to play dates pushed back an additional number of days because there was still transmission amongst the team, because players are still testing positive after not having team activities for a number of days, meaning that there was spread at some point. And it leads me to the first thing I want to talk about here is just how to be playing sports responsibly during a pandemic. Um, I know Deputy um, Commissioner Bill Daly had said that coming into the season, they assumed that there was not going to be spread amongst players during games based on the research they had from what had happened during the NFL season, where there did not seem to be any spread amongst people on the field. Someone in the Toronto area wrote a paper about the effects of the environment in which the games are played in. Hockey is played in a cold indoor environment, whereas football is played mostly in outdoor environments. Those dome stadiums have HVAC systems to filtrate air a little bit better. But generally speaking, there is more room in a football setting, and it's typically warmer than it is at a hockey arena. 
it that has to do with science. Uh, bear with me here. I do remember this from like sixth grade science. Molecules that are cold move slower. Molecules that are warmer move faster. Therefore, in a hockey environment where it's got to be cold, because you know hockey's played on ice, airflow is a little more stagnant. It's a little cooler. Those particles, those droplets, you know what Dr. Fauci was talking about for you know the better part of a year and a half now. That is why there seems to have been a significant spread between the Devils and Sabres and then the Avalanche and the Wild because the air is colder, it's less moving. Um, I know that as part of that, teams removed the glass behind their benches, and I know that I read in The Athletic today that the league is considering requiring teams to put fil air filtration systems behind the benches in a hope to stimulate airflow to minimize the possibilities of spread amongst teammates and opponents in while they're sitting on the bench. And I know I've read more than one suggestion that players should all have to wear the fishbowl, the plastic face guard that covers their entire face mask as it pertains to stopping the spread of those droplets. That is how COVID-19 spreads. Because more or less, there are four teams in the NHL right now that cannot play games because they wouldn't have enough numbers to play, enough players to play who aren't in the protocol. And it's still not prudent to play games yet because we don't know if the team transmission is done yet. I know in the NFL, they had access to um, something at the Mellon Lab in Pittsburgh where they were able to figure out if the spread was amongst people on the same team or if a player had it and another player had it, if they caught it from separate places based on something in the sequencing of the strain of the virus they particularly caught, a virus is constantly adapting. It is not always going to be exactly the same. So two people can catch different versions of the same thing. You're seeing it now with the variants that have popped up from places like the UK, like Brazil, that are a little more potent, that spread a little bit faster, that are a little more dangerous. The virus is constantly adapting and there's something in the sequencing that basically it's like doing forensic science where they can look at two samples from teammates to track whether or not they caught it from each other or if they caught it from separate people, which will be helpful in determining if there is spread amongst teammates or if these guys are catching it because they're around family members who are like, you know, just going to the supermarket, what have you. And they, there are additional wrinkles. It is difficult to be playing a sport in a pandemic. We saw baseball after a bumpy first month and a half get its act together. After the Marlins outbreak and after the Cardinals outbreak, there was more or less no problems. There were individual players popping up here and there for a number of days, but no widespread team issues that were taking out entire teams for weeks at a time like we've seen in the NHL thus far. Now, now that I've kind of set that apart, that is the newsiest news thing that's happened in the hockey world for the last number of days. Let's actually talk a little bit about the play on ice. First thing I noticed today in stuff I was reading is that scoring around the league is up. There are the most goals per game any year of the last 24 years. The only year that was higher, the first year post-2004 lockout, where the league instituted a lot of penalties to help the flow of the game. Things like emphasizing officials to call interference, obstruction, those kinds of penalties. Because prior to 2005, hockey had been... A it had been kind of ugly. It had been a little bit slower. Defensemen were able to grab, that kind of thing. Post-2004 lockout, the, the whole point was to help increase offense because offense attract eyeballs. There were more penalties awarded that year. You score more on penalties than you do on even strength, that kind of thing. Way to artificially create offense to help drive up scoring, to help bring some attention to the game. I do think there are a few other factors at play here. These are my personal things I've kind of worked on and tried to workshop and put into threads based on some stats. Number one, I have the team familiarity where these teams are playing each other pretty consistently. So they've got a pretty good feel for how each likes to play. And like in football, defense has to react to what the offense is doing. So the more an offense changes what they're doing, the more uncomfortable a defense is, that kind of thing. Um, I also have the skill gap and goaltending problems around the league where 
There are some just outright abysmal hockey teams who are just getting thumped on a nightly basis. And, the you know, the style of playing hockey now is geared towards offense. It is more up and down. There's more space. There's more room. There's more talented players. There's less clunky guys. More or less, everybody can handle the puck to some semblance of skill and make a play on it. There are very few lugs just out there to be out there to uh, skate and uh, throw hits and block shots. Those kind of players don't really exist anymore. And that there are just not as many goaltenders as there used to be in the league who are above average. I mean, you see it. I can say it from just watching the Rangers. Uh, Yuri and Shesterkin will probably be fine, but uh, both of them have been pretty bad thus far this year. I mean, the Rangers are in the uh, unlucky column right now because their save percentage is a little bit below, as is their shooting percentage. I'll talk about the Rangers a little bit, but this is not a Rangers episode of the podcast, so I won't dwell too much on them. They lost to the Islanders on Monday night. Uh, Varlamov stole one. They just couldn't bury one. Their shooting issues are a real issue. They are not finishing chances at even strength, and their power play is not scoring enough, so the offensive issues are bad, but the team's defensive play has been good enough that they're not getting embarrassed most nights. They're creating just enough chances to hold their own and be in most of their games. Now, the last thing I wanted to talk about here in this part was just there are not a lot of good goaltenders anymore. I mean, Hellebuck, yeah, John Gibson, uh, after that, you start getting to the guys who have small samples like Bennington, like Carter Hart, like Shesterkin. You can still got decent guys around the league. I mean, Rask is not bad. Freddie Anderson is not bad. And there's individual guys who are not awful, but there's not as much quality at the top like there has been in years past. I mean, Carey Price is below a 900 save percentage right now, which is remarkable considering how well the Canadians have played this year. It's not surprising that uh, scoring is up. This generation of players has grown up playing hockey in an era where there isn't as much holding, there isn't as much interference, there isn't as much grabbing, and the style of play is smoother. It's more geared towards offense. So the more this next generation of guys who came up playing this open-ended style of hockey get to the league, the more the league is going to begin to resemble that more open, fluid style of hockey you see at the lower levels because there's a little bit less structure. I'm not saying there still isn't structure in the league today. I'm just saying that the talent of the guys in the league, especially on the back end where defensemen are such strong skaters now and are not liabilities playing the puck on their stick, it's going to make offense a little bit easier because if your defensemen are helping you create scoring chances, you're maintaining control of the puck, it's easier to score. It's kind of what the Rangers have done this year thus far as an example is, aside from Adam Fox, Keandre Miller's been good in spurts in his own zone, but the reason the Rangers' defense has good underlying numbers this year is because they create scoring chances, because they control the puck and they're on the ice for chances, scoring chances for and not as many against. They are still conceding a lot of chances. The way I've seen more than one person describe it is Keandre Miller and Jacob Truba will give up four scoring chances per game. They will create six, so it's a net positive in scoring chances. I don't know how logical it is to try and win every single game four goals, five goals, six goals, and I'll give up three or four, but it's a possible strategy during the regular season during the playoffs things tighten up it's a lot harder to score with any regularity any consistency but i digress the interesting part of the hockey season thus far is you really seen some fun teams put something interesting together in a small sample most teams have only played 11, 12, 13, 14 games, somewhere in that ballpark, and this is not a significant enough sample to draw any final conclusions on. In the hockey world, it usually takes about 50 games in the regular season or so to develop real trends. In a 10-game window, a team can go on a crazy shooting binge, a goalie can get really hot. Those kind of things are important because there is variance in hockey. There isn't absolute enormous amount of variance game to game because there are so many variables on every single play. I often cite an article that Vox wrote a number of years ago saying that hockey 
had the most variance of any sport on a game-to-game basis, and then it was baseball, then football, then basketball, where the more talented someone is, it doesn't inherently mean that team is going to win in that order, meaning that hockey has the biggest variance. I mean, we've seen it a number of times. Ottawa had Ottawa beat Montreal last week. Uh, it is a weird sport. Strange things do happen, so we start there. But thus far, through this 13-game sample for this team I'm going to talk about, Edmonton has not played amazing hockey by any means, but what Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl are doing is remarkable. I know the national hockey media tried to tell you that Nathan McKinnon was just as good as Connor McDavid because he had a nice run in the bubble for Colorado last year. Nathan McKinnon's a very good hockey player. He's not Connor McDavid, and he never will be Connor McDavid. McDavid does supernatural things any given night. You should be watching him any opportunity you get. He is that special. He can get to open parts of the ice through bodies. He can bob and weave through traffic. He can stick handle around people. He can stick handle through people's legs like a nutmeg in soccer. His his vision of the ice, his ability to create space out of nothing, the way he makes all his teammates better, the amount of ice time he plays. I mean, he's a forward that plays almost 23 minutes a night, which is pretty crazy. I mean, he's the number two player in time on ice on his team after Darnell Nurse. Um, He's got 26 points in 13 games, so in a 56-game season, he is on pace for 112 points, which is uh, absurd because, you know... A 100-point season in an 82-game season is impressive. So, a 100-point season in a 56-game season would be remarkable. Of course, smaller sample, 13 games, not a final conclusion on what his production will be. But thus far, he's played a ungodly amount of minutes, as has Leon Dreisaitl, his running mate. Dreisaitl has 23 points in 13 games. He's playing 22 minutes, 15 seconds per game playing almost a full two minutes on the power play, as is McDavid, have one of the best power plays in the entire league. They create scoring chances at will because of their ability to get to open space when you're talking about McDavid. And for Dreisaitl, he's got a good shot, and his vision is superb. He can find people anywhere. Nugent Hopkins has played a nice role for them because he plays all three phases. He does even, obviously plays even strength. He's also on their first power play unit, and he's on their penalty kill. So, Nuge is doing a lot of work, but remember how I said that McDavid and Dreisaitl were doing a majority of the work? Um, They both have twice as many points as the next person on the team, which is Nugent Hopkins, who has 11 points going into Tuesday. So if you're listening to this late on Wednesday, they might have, uh, Nuge might have potted a point or two in the meantime, but yeah, McDavid, Dreisaitl, putting up an absurd percentage of the Oilers' points thus far this season. Uh, Basically, they're putting all their eggs in the basket of Leon and Connor will score all our goals until they don't anymore, basically. That in a shorter season, these two can play a heavier minute load. They played five and a half straight minutes in their game last Saturday, chasing a one-goal deficit. Uh, Dreisaitl was funny in his post-game press conference. He was basically to the effect of, what's the big deal? I did. I felt fine. We were able to do it. That kind of thing. Uh, insane to play a basically five and a half straight minutes in a hockey game. Yes, there were the stoppages, the face-offs where you can catch your breath, but five and a half minutes of non-stop hockey at their level is flat-out absurd. And yet, all of that said, the Oilers still have the same problems they had in McDavid's entire tenure in Edmonton, aside from the one year they made it to the second round of the playoffs. There just is not enough around him and Dreisaitl to be successful. Whether you want to talk about the bottom six, where Kyle Terrace is sinking everyone's underlying numbers because he's just that much of a shell of the player he used to be, who was pretty good in Ottawa. That was, I granted, he hasn't been in Ottawa in a number of years. He had a run in Nashville that was pretty unsuccessful. He went from that big contract that he signed in Nashville after getting traded there from Ottawa to basically being a leper and getting minimal role. Now he's kind of sinking the Edmonton bottom six. 
the goaltending is still abysmal, whether you want to talk about Misko, Miko Koiskinen, who's at 889, or the rookie Stuart Skinner, who got in one game, which, uh, which they won, yes, but he had an 868 save percentage. Uh, Mike Smith played for them on Monday night after coming back from injury. Mike Smith, you know, he was in Arizona forever. He had a couple years in Calgary. He's known for playing the puck, being aggressive, trying to cut down angles. Wasn't particularly good last year. Uh, they they beat the oil. Uh, the Oilers beat the Senators on Monday night. They were not particularly great. Uh, it it was clunky for a while. Uh, they had a hard time breaking through early on in the game. Matt Murray of Ottawa was giving them a hard time. They did end up winning the game, but the same problems are still there for Edmonton. They need something from the bottom six. They need goals from people that are not McDavid, Dreisaitl, and Nugent Hopkins. Their defense has shown signs of life. I like what I've seen of Evan Bouchard, the defenseman they drafted pretty high in the first round. I remember he was someone I was looking at for the Rangers the year they took Vitaly Kratsov ninth overall. Someone in the ballpark I thought Bouchard could possibly be a fit there. He hasn't played a ton, but in the limited role he's had, he's got nice underlines. He's close to positive in terms of scoring chances, which is all you can ask for for a guy trying to get his feet wet at the NHL level as a defenseman. You're going to need to see him slowly work his way up. They've got Yamamoto, who's not bad. He's a forward. They've got Ethan Bear, who's a young guy. They've got a lot of young guys who they're relying on to take jumps going forward to help be supplemental pieces amongst the top six. And then they just need their bottom six to be able to tread water and not get caved in, which has not been the case thus far this year. We we need that bottom six to give them something if the Oilers are going to make a run this year. Of course, they lost in the play-in round last year to the Blackhawks, which was very funny in hindsight, now looking at how bad Chicago is. Yeah, not not what you want to see from a team with the best player in the world and the guy who won the Hart Trophy as the league's most valuable player last year. But I digress, I digress. Moving on, just keeping on moving, another Canadian team that is of interest thus far into the season is, of course, the Montreal Canadiens, who have the best underlying numbers of any team in the league, a 2.79 expected goals for, and expected goals against a point of 1.75, which is just absurd to have an expected goal differential of 0.104, just absolutely insane levels of quality of play from Montreal thus far. Their defense has been outstanding which is important because Carey Price is save percentage is below 900. Yes, Jake Allen's is is 940, which is absurd. He will not be a 940 save goalie the entire year. He will regress. Jake Allen is around a 905, 91 kind of goaltender. Not going to be that good all year and Carey Price will probably get a little bit closer to that 91911 kind of area where he typically finds himself in his career. He's not as good as he formerly was, but on any given night he can still steal a game, which is why he's always at the top of those anonymous executive rankings for players by position. Um Montreal has done a nice job of assembling a well-rounded team that does not feature any superstars. They've gotten some nice production. They had Tyler Toffoli, Thomas Tatar has been pretty good for them. Lekkonen has not been bad. They've got nice pieces. Um, Of course, of course, they've got Kota Kiemi, who they drafted a number of years ago, who's had some ups and downs. He had a really strong rookie season, but since then, he's... Struggled to be consistent like young players do. I mean, playing against men at the NHL level is not easy. They've got nice individual pieces, though. Nick Suzuki, who's only 21, has 12 points thus far in 12 games. Josh Anderson, who they traded for from Columbus, has put together a really nice season thus far. He's got eight goals in 12 games. Drewen, 10 points in 12 games. Gallagher is still kicking around, who's only 28 years old, even though it seems like he's been in the league forever. Kota Kiemi, Philip Deneau, who's a nice center who suppresses scoring chances, Paul Byron, who's a little older now, but a, still a solid death player, they have Corey Perry, which is very funny at this point, but they've been successful because their defense is not conceding a lot of chances. Shea Weber's having a nice season. You want to talk about Ben Sherrod, who's been comfortable, Joel Edmondson, Brett Kulak, who's been pretty bad thus far in his career, but he's been Pretty good this year for Montreal. Romanov, the rookie kid who's played 
almost all of their games hasn't been bad. They are an example of a team playing greater than the sum of its parts and building up some confidence. I don't think Montreal will end up being in first at the of the North Division come the end of the regular season. I do think Toronto will separate itself as the season progresses, but Montreal has banked a lot of points early and given themselves some margin for error when they eventually do run into a shooting slump or a goaltending slump. Their PDO is over 100. It's 102.3. Last time I looked at it, th- that PDO is adding a team shooting percentage, the percentage of shots they score goals on to their goalies save their team goalie save percentage. So you average the two save percentages of the goalies together. Both are above the league average. The league average for goaltending is 910. The league average for shooting percentage is around 9%, 9.1% in that ballpark when you add them together, you get 100%. If your PDO is below that, it means your team's been unlucky. If it's above that, like Montreal's, it means your team is getting lucky and it's playing above the average level of talent would. It's not consistent. Some teams do manage to PDO their way to deep playoff runs. I know the year the Rangers lost to Ottawa in the second round, they hovered around a PDO of 101 the entire season because their shooting was a little high and they were getting really nice play out of Henrik Lundqvist. So it is possible, especially in a season like this where you only have 56 games to navigate, that you can play above your means for 56 games and get your way into the playoffs in a high seed and get an easier matchup in the first round. And then anything can happen in the playoffs, which is one of the magical things about hockey where you get weird things like the Stars going on a run after being pretty much dead in the water prior to the pause last year. So I've been impressed with Montreal this far. They're really suppressing scoring chances. I mean, their defense is creating negative 22 in expected shooting percentage for the other team. They are really not giving an inch and playing good defense. And when I say good defense, I don't mean blocking shots and throwing hits. I mean, they are just not letting the other team shoot the puck. They are forcing them to the outside to shoot from low danger areas outside of the hot zones between the circles in the circles. They're forcing the other team to take shots from the half boards and the points, which are not as valuable as those shots from in tight closer to the goaltender. Yeah. Terry Price, 899 save percentage. He won't stay that low the entire year. Jake Allen will not be a 940 save percentage this entire year, but you got to give Claude Julian credit for getting his guys to buy in and believe in what they're doing. I mean, when the Bruins fired Claude Julian, I tweeted that day the Rangers should fire Lane Vigneault and hire him. He's that good of a coach. He's always gotten good results, even if his Bruins teams were kind of dirty and underhanded and did some unsavory things as far as slew foot, dirty hits, that kind of thing. He's a good hockey coach. He's gotten good results. I almost called him Michelle Terrian, who was the Canadiens coach for before he got there. Michelle Terrian is, of course, the guy who rips cigarettes and has the really nasty French accent, who is an assistant coach in Philadelphia right now. They have not been... The unit that Michelle Terrian is in charge of in Philadelphia has not played particularly well. I will talk about the Flyers at some point. I'm trying to iron out an appearance date for someone I know to come talk about the Flyers from a perspective of someone who is dying with each passing minute because they are not playing up to their potential because their coaching staff is holding them back. Very familiar if you are a Rangers or a Canucks fan who dealt with Elaine Vigneault as the head coach of your hockey team at any point in your life. The last thing I want to talk about team perspective-wise, I do want to talk a little bit about Toronto just because they are an interesting case study and what happens when someone who believes in shot metrics and advanced analytics gets to organize a hockey team because what Dubas has done in Toronto is essentially take what we in the general public think of as advanced stats, analytics, stuff that has to do with the value of scoring chances, where your scoring chances are coming from, and built their team in that vision where they essentially have an all-offense team. And now, I don't know long-term 
how much you can bank on that. We've seen Toronto run into shooting spells where they really just struggle to finish their scoring chances. It's what happened to them last year in the bubble when they went up against Columbus. They just they couldn't figure out what they had to do. They've always had these issues where if the other team gets a little bit of momentum going, their defense kind of caves in. Thus far, their defense has not been atrocious, but it has not been good. And, of course, their special teams are operating at an absurd clip. Um, as recently as last week, they were their power play was scoring goals on 44% of power plays, which is unworldly good. A good power play in a typical season finishes in the low 30s or high 20s. So low 40s, low 50s, which the kid, they were for a couple of weeks into the season is just not sustainable. Even one as good as Toronto's where you can roll out Tavares, Matthews, Nylander, and then one defenseman where you have Morgan Riley up there. Uh, not sustainable to be that good, but they can certainly hover around the low 30s and score a bulk of the goals because they are such a fast team that draws a lot of penalties. Toronto has all of the pieces to make a deep playoff run. They just need Freddie Anderson to show up, really. Uh, he was part of the problem last year in the bubble in the play-in round where he just he wasn't consistent enough. He let in some weak ones, and Toronto just has always had that imaginary wall. They've always had that glass ceiling where they, when the moment was bright for them, they just could not score a goal even though they were creating the chances. That's the thing about Toronto is... Even when they are not scoring, they are creating high-danger chances, quality chances, because of how talented their team is. They've got such nice pieces. And then they've got some weird ones where you talk about Joe Thornton, you talk about Jason Spezza, Jimmy Vesey, Wayne Simmons, who broke his hand last week. They've got interesting pieces in that bottom six. There's a lot to... I think this is the best iteration of Toronto we've seen thus far. I think having Sheldon Keefe as your coach where he sees eye-to-eye with Dubas in terms of he's going to play the roster in the way it's supposed to be played. Um, if you're familiar with the money movie Moneyball, one of the key points of tension early on in that season is manager Art Howe and general manager Billy Bean not agreeing with how the roster should be played. The manager Art Howe playing different players that he has at his disposal instead of the ones being acquired for specific jobs that kind of thing where he was using certain relievers in certain situations and Billy Bean did not want him to do that because there were underlying numbers that he liked that's that's basically what Toronto is doing here but they have a coach and general manager on the same page who are working together to maximize their results based on those underlying numbers of course they do have to play the game still. They have to quantify those results. They have to turn those underlying numbers into actual numbers. I know I often deride counting stats that they don't tell you everything, that they lack context. But yes, goals count. Goals matter. Like I said, when I had Jay Fresh Hockey on back in October, we use the counting stats of casual fans because those are things we understand and that the underlying numbers are for people like us who want a deeper understanding of what's going on. Now that I've kind of talked about three, four teams I've been particularly interested, I've enjoyed watching for a variety of reasons. I do want to talk a little bit about the state of play in the NHL, who the for real teams are, who I need to see more of, and who probably needs to make a move to move up a tier. So, the first tier I have written down here is cup or bust, meaning the way the team is built right now will not be how it is next year. So you need to maximize what you can do right now. And you need if you don't win a Stanley Cup, you got to be pretty close to one. You got to make a conference final for your season to not be a waste. And there are more teams here that can make the conference final, which is a, a testament to how good the top end of the league is right now and because of the way the playoffs are going to be formatted this year where it won't be division specific matchups it'll be just you can get anything it'll just be overall seeding so we could get like a maple leafs bruins stanley cup final which could be uh, nightmare inducing for people from toronto so the first tier i have tampa bay who i've yet to who i haven't talked about on the podcast and Working on getting a Lightning episode because I know someone who's a very passionate Lightning fan and she's very funny, so she would make for a good episode. So we'll talk Tampa Bay in a little bit. Going to try and iron out when Amina can come on to talk about her Lightning. 
Next team I have here, these are in no particular order in this tier. I have Toronto in this tier because their offense is high-end enough. They can score goals pretty much at will. They just need 9-10 save percentage, and they'll be fine. I have Colorado here. Yes, Colorado hasn't played in about a week and a half, and we don't know the next time the Avs are going to be able to play. They've had a number of players go on the COVID list. Uh, not good stuff from the Avs, who are who were the Stanley Cup betting favorite coming into this season, who have as talented a roster as anyone in the league, who have Kale McCarr, who was well on his way to winning a Norris trophy. He's still the betting favorite for the Norris, even though the Avs haven't played in a number of days. I have Vegas here, who, like last year, they're right there, strong underlying numbers. They've got Mark Stone, who's still the most underrated player in hockey. They signed Petrangelo. They traded out Nate Schmidt. They've got a very nice team. I like it top to bottom. I do think I'd probably rather have Nick Suzuki than Max Pacioretty, but again, the, the Golden Knights were in win-now mode when they traded for Pacioretty, so I get why they wanted, they traded a 19-year-old because they wanted to win it at the moment, and a 19-year-old was a number of ways from comp competing. Yes, for now, Vegas, Tampa, Toronto, Colorado, my top four, and then I have Boston in this tier as well, the Bruins. They lost a few guys from last year's team, Tory Krug is now in St. Louis. They've greatly expanded Charlie McAvoy's role on the team. He's playing an ungodly amount of minutes every single night. He kills penalties. He runs a power play. He plays at even strength against the toughest opponents. They've still got that top line of Bergeron, Pasternak, and Marchand who can go up against anyone. They need their depth to work out a little bit. Uh, Andre Kush, I've liked for a number of years. Krejci, when he's healthy, is good. They need more from DeBrusque. They need more from Brendan Carlo. They need something from Zudnika. They've got nice pieces. Rask, obviously, is probably a top 7, 8 goalie in the league. They've got plenty of pieces. They went to the Cup Final two years ago. Bruce Cassidy's a pretty good coach. I think the Bruins will end up being in the final six, eight teams. So, yeah, they'll be somewhere in the final eight teams. I don't know if they're as good as the version two years ago. They don't have, right now, they don't have that secondary scoring they did two years ago where DeBrusque was playing really well, where they had Charlie Coyle playing really well. There's plenty of time for them to get right. They'll probably end up winning the East Division just because they're probably the most complete team of everyone in the East Division. Uh, going down into the next tier, I need to see more from them before I make a final determination. Montreal, obviously, I need to see if the shoot, if the, they're going to keep suppressing shots at this level and creating as many. I need to see Edmonton get something out of its bottom six before I'm willing to say they're a contender. Philly, I need them to score some friggin' goals. Their offense has been pretty abysmal from an underlying numbers standpoint. They're scoring goals that, at rates they shouldn't be. They've had some weird ones. They've had a couple of very random guys get hat-tricks. They haven't gotten a ton from Claude Giroux or Jake Voracek. They've gotten a few from Van Riemsdyk. Kevin Hayes still kicking along. On the back end, they're playing Provorov, number one defenseman minutes, when he's probably a number two or three defenseman. It's the same problem that the Rangers have with Jacob Trouba, where they're paying him so much they feel obligated to give him that number one role. Provorov's not their best defenseman. I honestly don't know who the Flyers' best defenseman is. I'd have to look into it a little deeper, but Philly needs to put together some sustainable hockey. It's a very Elaine Vigneault team right now, where they're scoring un, in a way un sustainable to the way they're playing they're scoring goals even though they're having uh less than 50 percent of the expected goals in a game that kind of thing and of course they're riding their goaltender carter hart's playing very well already he had a very nice run last year prior to the bubble he was good in the first round carter hart is a good goalie it's just a matter of how good he can be he's probably going to be the goalie for team canada at the 2026 Olympics, if not the 2022 Olympics, if he can usurp Carey Price. Also in this tier, if St. Louis, Calgary, and Dallas, who all fall into the same category of pretty good, well-rounded, I don't totally trust the goaltending situation, but I could see a universe in which they could make a run if some things go their way. Dallas did it, you know, five months ago, where they went to the cup final pretty improbably, 
after being dead in the water prior to the pause back in March of last year. They've got talent. Uh, the Blues need Tarasenko to come back from injury. They need Tori Krug to start clicking on all cylinders. And they need to handle their business against bad teams. They lost to Arizona on Monday night at the buzzer, and they went to a shootout. Clayton Keller scored a goal with a fractions of second left before the buzzer went off. Then they, through nothing happened in the three-on-three overtime. A couple chances both ways. And then the Coyotes won in the shootout. I would like to see more from the Blues. If, when Tarasenko can come back, that will help a lot. The Stars need Tyler Sagan to come back. He had hip surgery in the offseason. Both of them are expected sometime mid to late February, if not early March. So they will be back at some point during the regular season this year. It's just a matter of when. And the last tier of teams here I have are upside, but not playing well. Um, I have Carolina in this tier. They've been very inconsistent thus far this year. They did have a COVID scare right when the season started after they played Nashville. They've yet to really find their footing. Their goaltending has been an issue. They've still got as good a defensive core in the entire league. I think Dougie Hamilton is still very underrated. They've got Jacob Slavin, who's an elite shot suppressor. You go down the line, Brett Pesci is very good. Brady Shea in a limited role has been fine for them. I like what Carolina has as far as talent. Svechnikov, Ajo, Trocek. They've got really nice pieces up and down their lineup. It's not, I'm not particularly worried about Carolina because at least since Rob Brittimore has been their coach, they've always played pretty sustainable hockey where they create a lot of chances without conceding a lot of chances. I think with time, they will sort it out. Of course, 56 games is not 82 games worth of time to figure out your problems. The sooner you figure out your problems, the better, because every single game you're falling behind is like a game and a half in an 82-game season, a game and a third, because 56 is about two-thirds of an 82-game season. That's something you have to consider, that every game is worth a little bit more this year than in a typical season. I have Minnesota in this tier, who, prior to having their COVID outbreak, was playing a pretty sound defensive style of hockey that the team is well known for, where they do not concede a lot of scoring chances. They have a hard time scoring, typically, but they don't give up that many chances, so they're able to hang around in a lot of games. Cam Talbot had played pretty well for them in the limited action he had gotten. They, Kirill Kaprizov, the rookie from Russia, has played very well as a 23-year-old. I had him on my fantasy team, of course, because I had him on my fantasy team, and I bet him to win the Calder Trophy. He, his team got shut down for COVID, and we don't know the next time the Wild are going to play in this tier. I also have the Winnipeg Jets, who in that North Division, someone's got to be that number four seed. I don't know who it's going to be. Winnipeg has the high-end talent, but they've had a really hard time at even strength. Uh, a lot of Mark Shifley's points have come on the power play. They have not created a lot of chances at even strength. Connor Hellebuck is going to have to be Superman again like he was last year if the Jets are going to make the playoffs. I also have the very weird Florida Panthers who are not playing like the sexiest hockey, the smoothest hockey. They just got a lot of guys, to be frank. They got pieces, no one on that team. I Barkov is very good. Huberto is pretty good. But other than that, there's no one that like blows you away. It's just a pretty well-rounded hockey team. And after Florida, I have Washington. Uh, Washington is what you would expect them to be. I Their goaltending is going to be an issue, only having Vanacek and uh, Samsonov, neither of which had ever been a number one goaltender before this year. And then you look down their lineup, it's the usual suspects. So Vetchkin, Backstrom, Tom Wilson, Carlson, Verano, Oshie, Hathaway, who they got last year at the deadline, who's been pretty good for them. Justin Schultz, they overpaid for, but he's fine. Chara is a shell of the player he used to be, but he's still about a replacement-level defenseman. Kuznetsov missed a number of games because of COVID. They still have Haglin, they have Panic, Jensen. This is a very solid team. It has high highs, but very low lows. It's a matter of how much they really want to put into this. I mean, thus far this year, they have a very low shooting percentage. Their expected goals for is less than 50%. They have a less than 50% Corsi. They do, however, have some upside. We can we've seen, We know what this team is capable of on any given year. 
That year they won the cup. That roster wasn't particularly better than any other iteration of the Capitals during Ovechkin's tenure. They just got hopefully hot at the right time, and Ovi did his job. This team can go as far as it wants to, as long as it can, you know, keep everyone healthy, and the goaltending is a net negative. I don't know how much of a difference Peter Laviolette will make as their head coach, as opposed to Todd Reardon, who got canned after last season, this unceremonious dumping in the bubble in Toronto. I think Washington has some upside. They're currently third in the Eastern Division, and I think they're probably a lock for the playoffs because, just matter-of-factly, the Rangers not played well. The Devils and Sabres are both off in quarantine. And then you start, it's really just going to come down to them, the Islanders, and the Penguins for that fourth spot. Because the Bruins and Flyers are pretty much set up at 1-2 and and probably will finish 1-2. and And then it'll be the Capitals, Islanders, and Penguins fighting over the last two spots. There's three teams for two spots unless the Rangers can dramatically turn around their fortunes very quickly. So, going into... If you were looking at the futures market and wanted just someone to think about... I'd look at Toronto, I'd look at Boston from that second tier, because you're not going to get a ton of value on Colorado or Tampa. Tampa, of course, does not have Nikita Kucherov, who will be back at some point during the regular season, similar to uh, Tarasenko and Sagan, we're just not sure when. I know uh, he had practiced a couple of weeks ago and had had a setback at some point. We assume Kucherov will be back during the regular season. Tampa's fine. I like, they basically ran it back with the team from last year. Uh, They've got the best goalie in the league in Vasilevsky. Hedman is still one of the five, six best defensemen in the league. McDonough's a solid second pair guy who can anchor that second pair and do the dirty work on the kill. The the forwards, uh, Sorelli's line will figure it out, him, Gordon, Blake, Coleman. They'll get it together. They haven't played well from an underlying standpoint, but they were very good in the playoffs last year. They'll figure it out. Just give them a little bit of time. Tampa Bay will be fine. That central division is very, very soft. They uh, took care of business in Nashville on Monday night. I watched a little bit of that game. I'm not worried about Tampa. The last thing here on my rundown is very quick, but in theory, the Winter Olympics should be taking place around this time next year. So, number of publications put out their Team Canada, Team USA, Russia, Sweden, whatever predictions. And I want to get mine out there. This isn't the sexiest one. This isn't the most uh, outside-the-box one. Straightforward. Down the middle, we're going Jack Eichel, Austin Matthews, Dylan Larkin, Jack Hughes. Hughes is based on upside. Assuming Hughes keeps getting better at the rate he is, I'd rather have him go than Joe Pavelski go. If Hughes is still a little bit of a worry, Team USA will probably bring Pavelski no matter what, even if he's only on the bench as an extra skater in case of injury, that kind of thing, or maybe a different look for a different kind of opponent. I could see Pavelski getting on. Pavelski more than likely will be on Team USA. He was the captain a number of times during his window on the team. On the left wing, Matthew Kachuk, Jake Gunsel, Johnny Goudreau, Max Pacioretty. Again, all pretty straightforward, nothing too crazy. Pacioretty might be a little old. You could probably make an argument for Kyle Connor in that spot, maybe. There's a number of guys you could possibly put there. Maybe a Chris Kreider if you want to go for someone a little bit older who has international experience. But you definitely have options. On the right wing, yeah, we still got to bring Patrick Kane. He's the best American right winger right now. There's not really anyone on the radar to supplant him in that role at the moment. Second line, right wing, Brady Kachuk, Matt's brother. We're going to have both Kachuk brothers on this team. They are both high-end players with a little bit of an edge that can throw their body around, be a little bit agitating in these international games where that's not typically a component. These games in international tournaments are typically pretty open-ended, a lot of high-quality hockey that resembles what overtime in the NHL playoffs look like, where there's a lot of space and room to operate because everyone who's on the ice is just so talented. I want both Kachucks there. We got to bring Eichel and Matthews. That's as good a top six as Team USA has had maybe since 2010. If you want to say that team had a better top six, I'd listen to you. I don't know if I'd agree, but 
Eichel and Matthews are as good a one-two punch as Team USA's ever had down the middle. Eichel and Matthews are both top seven, eight players in the league when they're healthy. Um, and then fourth line, as third line, we're going to have JT Miller. Uh, he usually plays on the left, but he's played center at times in his career. He could probably play on the right. Wouldn't be too much of an issue. And then uh, we had to bring someone else, Blake Wheeler, uh, older guy, leader guy, still has upside, not the best skater anymore, but he can still drive possession if you give him favorable zone starts and good line mates, which we have here. The defense is the fun part of this team. I would very much like to see a Quinn Hughes, Adam Fox defensive pair if we could. That's probably not going to happen. But if we could get Quinn Hughes and Charlie McAvoy, that would be very fun. Jacob Slavin, Adam Fox, and then Tory Krug and Seth Jones. I know I'm leaving out John Carlson. I'm a little bit of I'm a little bit biased here bringing Adam Fox, but from a metric standpoint, Adam Fox is better than John Carlson. And then in goal, no doubt, Hellebuck and Gibson. Those are easily the best two American goaltenders. This is a pretty good Team USA. It's not as good as Team Canada's team on paper. Obviously, Team Canada has the luxury of, like, you know, debating between which generational talent it wants to bring as its number one center. They'll bring Sid. They'll bring McDavid. They'll bring McKinnon. Then on the back end, you'll have guys like McCarr. They have all the talent in the world. The biggest advantage Team USA will have is if Team Canada is dumb and brings Carey Price, who's going to be more or less useless at that point because he's not an 899 goalie like he is right now in the league, but he's not the 925 guy he was five, six years ago. He's just not, and no matter how many times executives think he will, I would rather go with someone like Carter Hart, who, or even Yash Jordan Bennington, who's a little bit younger, has a little bit more of a sustainable sample size over more recent history, which I think is more important that he's been better longer, not just going on reputation, which does often happen when international teams are picked, that the teams are built on reputation. Now, I've given you a healthy dose of the NHL to catch you up on some of the things I've noticed from my sto- my, my travels around the league and this pandemic where I've been watching a disgusting amount of hockey every single day because I love hockey so goddamn much. I will see you guys tomorrow. Unsure of the guest, it might be the Flyers episode that might be later in the week. I will get back to you guys. I will see you guys tomorrow.